welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 55, and today, yeah, I'm going to revisit lumber prices. It does seem that the previous two episodes I've done on lumber prices and COVID and how it's affecting lumber prices is still not enough information based upon the number of people emailing me stating explicitly, I've heard the first two episodes, so what's the deal with lumber prices? Well, you know what? I'm going to revisit it one last time because I'm hoping we are starting to turn things around. But in addition to that, I want to talk a little bit about some additions to the U.S. Lacey Act that we're going to be seeing happening in the fourth quarter of this year. And I want to talk, uh, answer a bunch of questions. I've got questions about pallet wood, about slabs, about um, equilibrium moisture content, some additional talk about white oak, and some talk on veneer matching. A lot of great questions sent in from you guys. I appreciate that so much. As always, a big, big thank you to my supporters on Patreon. If you are interested in supporting the show, you can go to Lumber Update, or excuse me, patreon.com slash lumber update. And, um, you know, it's, it's always just... A, Great, great appreciation to all of you guys who um, just throw a little at me each month to support the show. Most importantly, keep the questions coming. I do have a pretty good backlog of questions, and I'm trying to kind of blend them together into a theme as much as possible, but I can always use more questions. And certainly, I get some questions that are particularly timely, and I kind of bump them to the front, um, or just some that, frankly, really, really interest me and I think can be uh, worth basing a show around. So by all means, go to lumberupdate.com. There is a form you can fill out to submit questions there, or you can just submit questions via email at lumberupdate at gmail.com. So anyway, let's get into the show here with a little bit of industry news. Uh, the first thing is the Lacey Act. Certainly talked about the U.S. Lacey Act in the past and how it relates to lumber. Well, lumber is, is a relatively new addition to the Lacey Act, considering the Lacey Act's been around for more than 100 years. But there are some additional things being added that will go into effect, or rather enforcement, on October 1st of this year, 2021. And that is now oriented strand board, which has never been under Lacey before, is now going to be monitored by Lacey. And then any kind of cases or boxes or crates or even pallets made of wood now needs to be considered. And there's been all kinds of um, amendments and kind of changes to this to get the wording right so it's not quite so vague, which is very, very nice because there are some things in the Lacey Act that are particularly ambiguous and certainly can be interpreted one way or the other. And uh, originally, it just started with, you know, cases, boxes, crates, drums, containers, pallets, box pallets, etc. And there was very little additional information there. But they've started to, to spell it out a lot more. And I find this particularly, um, well, exciting, frankly, because we have seen a great number of just miscellaneous species being used for bolsters, being used for pallets, being used for all kinds of packaging material. Now, I don't think it's really been any anything nefarious. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure somebody out there has been trying to smuggle some, you know, inconspicuous lumber into a lacy monitored or a CITES protected species, God forbid. But really, there needs to be a little bit more enforcement, but certainly regulation and more attention paid to the things that our stuff is shipped in because it can be actually be a really effective way to launder lumber being brought into the country. Uh, one thing I also say um, 
kind of indirectly related to lumber is some essential oils are now being added to Lacey to be monitored as well, which is particularly important as well, because there are some essential oils that come from actual CITES protected species. Um, also some non-CITES protected species, but species that need to be kind of paid attention to as far as uh, local manufacturing legislation as well. If it's the essential oil is extracted somewhere in country in a far-flung region of the world, you know, Lacey, this is the same thing that Lacey thinks about when it comes to the importation of lumber um, and, and, you know, all flora and fauna for that matter. So you will expect to see additional documentation, more importantly, additional line of sight and chain of custody into not just the lumber that's coming into the country, but the packing material that that lumber is sitting on, like the pallets. So yeah, expect that to go into enforcement October 1st of this year. And of course, any additions to Lacey or CITES for that matter that happened during national or excuse me, um, uh, annual conventions, I'll certainly be updating it here on the show as well. Now, let's talk a little bit about lumber prices before I get into questions. And this is brought up again because there was a particularly good article in the Washington Post recently that several people have sent to me. It also just popped up um, kind of organically in my own feeds. And the, uh, the article is basically quoting um, the Fed, uh, the U.S. Uh, Federal Trade, saying um, the lumber industry is actually somewhat of a model for the economy. And they're saying that, you know, we, we can kind of look at this as a, as a microcosm um, and how the lumber industry has responded, aka the prices skyrocketing, and then the dramatic drop in prices that we're starting to see now. Because essentially, it's the perfect storm. When the pandemic first hit, sawmills immediately had to furlough workers and could um, immediately cut production to prepare for kind of a punishing recession. But at the same time, housing, new housing starts fell to the lowest level. So it was kind of like emphasizing, ooh, bad times ahead, furloughing workers, downsizing in sawmills. Well, the pandemic said, well, now you're all stuck at home. So people started doing massive home improvement. And we saw huge amounts of remodel work going on. Well, this caught all the sawmills with low inventories and COVID thin crews kind of completely unaware. And then we started to see panic buying setting in. Consumers with the all the remodeling going on for their houses and the, the work from home era kind of rushed to say, okay, we got to get our lumber now. Uh, we don't want to be unable to do this job or the contractors doing the work were rushing to get the lumber in and started buying en masse. Prices peaked in the lumber market around May 7th um, at about $1,686 per thousand board feet. Um, that's actually up from $460 per thousand board feet before the pandemic began. So you can see a four times increase um, just because of that little perfect storm of, of furloughing, production being cut back, put against the massive spike in remodeling work. The thing is, and this is what the Fed's really saying, is don't expect pre-COVID prices to return. While this was going on, wages went up about 10%. Um, then as that boom started to happen in the construction and remodeling trades and lumber companies started selling lumber for really, really high prices, even though they had thin inventory, they were making up for it with high prices, that uh, excess of capital coming into these lumber companies was turned around and... Um, 
capital investments were made, improvements to the actual manufacturing process was essential because what we realized when um, COVID hit is we were really inefficient. We were kind of screwed. Um, I've said this a lot. I mean, since I started uh, working um, in the lumber industry more than a decade ago, I was surprised at just kind of how behind the times the industry was from a systems and IT perspective, from a manufacturing perspective, from just a lot of things that are kind of commonplace elsewhere in corporate America. They were not commonplace in the lumber industry. And the inefficiencies that we saw when suddenly, say, half the staff is laid off and there was realization that we can't actually do our jobs. We can't actually run the business without 10, 20 more people here on staff. So then as money started to roll back in due to increased lumber price, it was okay. How can we add more automation to this? How can we improve our IT systems? How can we improve our lumber handling systems? What kind of efficiencies and automation can be brought into the process of lumber moving through our mill so that we don't necessarily get caught with our pants down because we don't have enough workers? At the same time, there's been this massive labor shortage where people were either, you know, scared to go back to work because of the pandemic or to be perfectly honest, it became difficult to employ people again because people who got laid off had to find jobs somewhere else. They took jobs. And of course, there's a lot of people who just don't want to go back to work. So there's this massive labor shortage driving wages up in order to attract more employees. So we're still massively short-staffed. We've sunk a lot more money into our infrastructure to allow for um, operating on a smaller crew, but it still is driving up overhead all over the place. So while the lumber futures market may drop, you're going to see just the cost of doing business has gone up in the last year to 18 months. And this is kind of across the board in the lumber sector as in the construction trade. And this is exactly what the Fed is saying is here's what's happened in the lumber industry. You can expect the same thing to happen kind of globally. Now, certainly there are some industries that were totally unaffected by the whole work from home thing. You talk about a lot of uh, high tech companies that have already been doing massive amounts of work from home that have the latest and greatest inventory management systems and CRMs and all kinds of automation built into their just day-to-day operations. But in the manufacturing world, I don't think you can actually say that. And this was really a rude awakening to a lot of the industry. Lumber industry, especially like the pressure-treated lumber guys, suddenly realized they just could not operate anymore. Well, that's changed. And unfortunately, what's changed is not a whole bunch of people coming back to work. They've changed by adding greater automation into things. As I said, with that comes overhead. So yes, you will see lumber prices beginning to drop. I have already seen it pretty dramatically in my local retailers. I'm seeing it day to day at the lumber yard where I work. Um, these these um, kind of national averages for board foot prices, it's really more of a softwood number. Obviously, the hardwood numbers are way too varied to put any kind of meaningful average on it. But on the whole, we have seen these prices start to fall pretty dramatically. What I don't want people to think is, let's keep waiting, let's keep waiting. I was able to buy poplar for X dollars a board foot. I could buy cherry for X dollars a board foot. Don't wait for it to get back to whatever that X was pre-pandemic. You can expect it to be X plus one, X plus two, you know, because of just greater cost of doing business. Moreover, and I feel like I've talked about this on the show before, and a lot of the domestic commodity type species like poplar, like red oak, um, maple, those prices were plateaued for decades. 
And the demand has only increased over those ensuing decades with no increase in price. And you're getting to a point where the actual sawmills, more importantly, the loggers, are finding it not profitable to actually cut down the red oak um, or, or in some instances, poplar or maple. And the price has got to go up in order to compete with just the rising cost of everything else, the rising cost of gasoline, the rising cost of labor, the rising cost of equipment. And uh, in the last show, I, I mentioned how the show Big Timber on Netflix has really caught my attention lately. Well, again, watch that show and see just how much equipment goes into actually running a lumber concession and the constant, constant spending required to keep that equipment up and running. So yeah, don't expect those prices to go all the way back down to where they were before. But if you are holding out, waiting for lumber prices to drop, you shouldn't have to hold out much longer. We should be back to a reasonable market. Um, if not already seeing it now, certainly within a month or so. And certainly as we move out of summer into fall, you will start to see some construction trends pick up while others fall off. Um, and we can hopefully balance some of that, that um, spending out and some of that demand uh, will be balanced out by just increased production in so many of the mills that have had a chance to kind of get their feet under them again. So for everybody who continues to ask me about lumbar prices, yes, they're high. Yes, they're going down. Yes, they will stabilize soon. But no, they're not going to go back to where they were before. Okay, so moving on to some emails, and this is actually particularly timely uh, with my Lacey comment earlier. Ed wrote in and said, uh, my neighbor just got a bandsaw from Taiwan and I helped him get it into a shop. It was on a small pallet, maybe two and a half feet square, which itself was on a normal pallet, maybe three and a half feet square. The small pallet was twice the weight of the large pallet and it got me thinking about internet rumors of pallets from Asia made from various hardwoods. Do you know if such rumors are true? And if so, would it be safe to work with such wood? I can only imagine what horrors happen to an overseas pallet, and perhaps they're unsafe for various reasons. Some scraps of hardwood aren't worth it if there's a real health risk. So, yeah, um, Ed, the, the rumors are absolutely true. I didn't know they were rumors. <laughs> to me, they were mostly fact. If you've ever looked at um, a, a pallet, from, especially something shipped from overseas, it's usually some indeterminate wood. Or in many instances, it's a wood that you know quite well, but it's of a very it's a much, much lower grade. Um, maybe from a wood that you don't normally see sap in, and here it is that a same species of wood with sap in it. Sapili is a good example. There's very little sap wood in Sapili, um, but what there is is cut off and turned into pallets. This is, in, in many instances, the pallets are made by the actual sawmills. They need something to put those freshly sawn boards on in order to load onto a truck, in order to be loaded into a container, and all that creating material was made right there at the mill from the offcuts, from the leftovers, from the tertiary, quadrary type grades. The other thing you can expect is if it's not the same grade, it's some tertiary species that's usually a local only species, doesn't really have any export value. Um, a lot of times it can be used for construction there in that country of origin. Um, it's, it's not, it's not an expensive species, um, by any means. And since it's not normally exported, it gets built into pallets and crates and containers and stuff, which is also why this is becoming important that Lacey pay attention to some of this stuff because up until now it's been kind of the wild west. Like you can make that crate or pallet out of anything you just had lying around and it might be important to pay attention to what some of those species are. As far as 
<laughs> he talks about what horrors may have happened to an overseas pallet. I hate to tell you this, but you're not going to find any more horrific things to an overseas pallet than you will a domestic pallet. It's all kinds of chemicals and animal urine, hell, human urine <laughs> on pallets, all kinds of, of petroleum products, gasoline, all kinds of stuff that just gets spilled on them as that pallet is in a shipping container, as it's you know sitting in a port somewhere. Um, the lumber that the pallet was made from was sitting in a pile somewhere that may have had all kinds of things spilled on it and rained on and creatures living in it. And yeah, you know, it's anytime I think you're working with a pallet, there could be a potential health risk. And most people who work with pallets go through a pretty extensive cleansing process using, you know, fun chlorine type chemicals and things in order to make sure that there's nothing on that wood. Um, as far as the wood itself posing a health risk, um, I suppose it's always possible. Um, the biggest issue working with any new species is everybody's going to react a little bit differently. I know people who can work with Western and Cedar all day long. Me, I work with it for about an hour and I immediately start sneezing and get really stuffed up really, really quickly. Western and Cedar just bugs me, doesn't bug other people. Um, Coca below, I know drives certain people crazy, causes them to break out in rashes almost instantly. Me, it's never really bothered. So if it's a pallet, um, wood that you're using, you don't want to just assume that it's going to be dangerous, but at the same time, you don't want to assume it's safe, you know, but you would want to wear a respirator. Um, if you're turning it or something like that anyway, whether it's good for you, dust or bad for you, dust, there's no such thing as bad for you or good for your dust is there. So be aware if you're unsure what the species is. Uh, and if you've had reactions to wood before, it's something that you want to take into account. But, you know, I'm not going to say that it's impossible for a toxic species or something to end up on um, in a pallet. But these days, especially after October 1st, the species that pallet is made from will now need to be declared. So there will be a chain of custody and some documentation that says exactly what that species is. However, on the whole, if it's lumber um, that's being shipped or being exported, in most cases, 99% of the time, the pallet material, the bolster material, the crating material is the same species as whatever the lumber is that's being shipped. For uh, paperwork purposes, for simplicity in that respect, most importers of record will declare we want the crating material to be the same species. Otherwise, then you're having to file two separate forms and it can get really, really crazy if the chain of custody ever gets mixed up. If that pallet is made from a different source, it causes a lot more paperwork. So in the end, it's so much easier to say, hey, we're bringing in IPE, make the crating material out of IPE as well. Um, that's going to be pretty standard. And now that it's going to be enforced as of October 1st, you're going to see that even more so. But as I said, it will now be documented. The chain of custody will be clear on what that actually is. The pallet is made from, and that will apply to lumber being shipped or bandsaw being shipped. All right, moving on here. Daniel has a question about slabs. I know I talked about this on wood talk before, but he says, when is the slab pricing market going to equalize these backyard sawyers around me are basically asking S4S prices for roughs on slabs, exclamation point, exclamation point. One was asking $12 a board foot for ash. I can get clean ash through a lumber yard for a quarter of that price. Most seem to be out to lunch or am I missing something? 
I get selling privately, you can do what you want, but wow. Uh, Daniel, I have to say, you are missing something. Um, You cannot compare slab pricing to regular board pricing, whether it's S4S or rough or not. A slab is a unique entity. Boards, frankly, the expression run of the mill, they are run of the mill. They're just average boards. And you know, the price may be changed based upon the thickness, based upon the width, or in some instances based upon the cut. Quarter sawn white oak is gonna sell more than flat sawn white oak. Quarter sawn anything is gonna sell more than flat sawn just because of the lower net yield from a log. But a slab is neither quartered nor flat. Um, it's not a grade. You can't grade a slab FAS. In fact, there's no way we'll probably ever meet that. Um, well, what it is is a unique entity. Live Edge carries a, a larger cost these days because Live Edge is really in vogue. The funny thing is, is Wayne and Live Edge is actually a defect according, according to NHLA lumber grading. But you wouldn't, as I say, grade a, a slab, you're not going to grade figured lumber because figure is a defect as well. Figured lumber, you know, tiger maple automatically would be the lowest grade because there's nothing clear on there. But tiger maple is going to sell for substantially more than clear flats on FAS maple. That's because figured wood is a unique thing. It's a rare thing. And because of that, it's going to ge- generate a much, much higher price. A slab is the same thing. Think of it like figured lumber. In many instances, slabs are figured. They have crotch figure and all kinds of other figure in them. They have the live edges. They have the included sapwood. So you have to stop thinking in terms of ash is X dollars a board foot or oak is X dollars a board foot. So therefore, this slab is X board feet and it should be this cost. That's just not the way it works. Now, I can, I can understand your exasperation because I feel the same way here. The slab thing has kind of gotten played out a little bit. It's been popular for a very long time and a lot of people have jumped into that market and started offering slabs. And the prices continue to rise because it's super, super popular. Well, the fact of the matter is you can take a slab, you can rip the live edges off and maybe rip out any of the crotch figure or something like that and you would have normal boards. And that would now be the same price as a, a regular you know, board foot price on whatever that species is. It's because you've now ripped it out of the slab and it's no longer a unique entity. So yeah, sorry. It's an apples and oranges type thing. Um, Whether you think slabs are unique or not is not really up to you. It's kind of up to the market. I'm with you. I'm kind of over them. I don't really need them anymore. Um, I'd rather you just saw it into lumber, but that's my opinion. And it sounds like that's Daniel's opinion as well. So yeah. Those guys, they can ask whatever they want because if they have the demand for it and people are willing to buy it, they can they can sell it for that. So I say kudos to them. Capitalism at its finest. Sterling has an interesting question on equilibrium moisture content. He says, when you talk about lumber coming to equilibrium with the surrounding environment's humidity, how do you determine the surrounding environment's humidity using a unit of measurement that is the same as your wood humidity measurement? When I looked online, I couldn't find a conversion of relative atmospheric humidity to water content humidity, the reading that you get from a a moisture meter. I live in a city where relative humidity is usually around 70%, so I, I can't imagine my wood humidity reading would need to be the same value. You're absolutely right, Sterling. They, they don't really relate to one another. I mean, first of all, atmospheric humidity is a relative term. You know, the warmer the air is, the more moisture it can hold. So 70% humidity at 80 degrees Fahrenheit is not the same water vapor as 70% humidity at 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Two very different numbers because of that relative nature of of, uh, air temperature. 
So that being said, that's very much a moving target. What we're talking about is kind of a parts per million, how much water um, per weight is in this particular board. And that's where that percentage comes from, which essentially is a unitless measure, right? Percentage doesn't have a unit next to it. It's just saying, here's how much water is in this board um, as compared to wood that's in the board. So what you need to look at in order to figure out what your EMC in your area is, is other boards that have come into equilibrium. And one of the best things you can do is take a board and, and measure its weight and continue measuring its weight until it stops dropping weight. Um, you might even see a board drop weight and, and stabilize and then kind of come back up again. Or if you're buying, uh, he says he's in a humidity area, it's about 70%. If you're buying kiln dried lumber, that's like six to 8%. There's every possibility that the weight of that lumber, when you bring it into your shop is going to increase because that relative, that moisture content is going to increase to match the equilibrium with your local climate. So long story short, measure the weight of a board in your shop until it stops dropping weight, until it stabilizes. Once it's stabilized and, and you've checked it for you know uh, maybe up to a week and it's not gaining or losing any weight at that point, now use your moisture meter and measure that moisture content. Whatever that percentage says is going to be your EMC in your shop in your, in your area. So if it says 10%, 10% is really what your EMC needs to be in your shop. And I'd be willing to bet that that EMC is not going to vary dramatically from your shop to your living room to your upstairs bedroom, et cetera. It's all going to be relatively close. So, and, and yeah, so you can't really compare it based upon the weather report to this. That's the the most tried and true way that I know to do this. And if you're really uncertain, cut off a, like a small sample, put it in your oven and bake it, bake out all the moisture so that it's at 0% moisture and then measure the weight and then continuing measuring the weight as it gains um, moisture and then it will stabilize. It will stop gaining weight. Um, and you will know there's your EMC. Um, the only reason I say you bake it out is just kind of gives you a place to start from. So you know that it's either going, you know, it's only going to gain weight at that point. It's safe to say though, that if you bring a board into the shop, measure the weight immediately, and then measure it a, like a day or two from there, you'll be able to see the trend. It's either gone up or it's gone down. It will continue to go in that direction until it stops. Measure the moisture, there's your EMC, and that will give you your number from there on. Frankly, I think any woodworker should have an idea of what their EMC is in their shop because it will be really the number you base all your joinery decisions on from there on out. And your EMC can change seasonally. So you take that same board and measure it in the winter and measure it in the summer. And you won't, you know, don't be shocked if your EMC goes up a percent or two in the summer as compared to what it would be in the winter or maybe 4%. So yeah, you should really know those numbers and now you know how to get them. Philip had uh, an interesting question. It kind of makes me laugh uh, coming from a marketing uh, background. He says, I have a client who wants to use Southern white oak for a project. I've never known there'd be a geographic difference in the selection of white oak. Is this a thing? <laughs> and is it hard to find? Great question, Philip. Uh, no, <laughs> no, it's not a thing. It's not a thing with a butt. Um, it's not a thing here in North America. White oak is white oak. I mean, certainly you're going to find some variations in species that would still kind of be considered white oak, but technically it's a different uh, genus within the Quercus, uh, different species within the Quercus genus. You can, however, find a differentiation uh, internationally. French white oak 
is something that's starting to be specified by a lot of interior designers and architects. And um, that really comes from the fact that <clears throat> English oak or brown oak, even English oak in general, has a slightly different character than the continental, than the French, specifically French white oak. Like the stuff that uh, they're rebuilding Notre Dame with is French white oak. It definitely has a different look, texture, and and even technical properties to the English oak, which has been specced for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. But that is also slightly different from American white oak. It's going to have different properties to it, even a different look and feel. But white oak in the southern part of the U.S. and white oak in the northern part of the U.S. is still pretty much the same species. I'd be willing to bet that there's someone who saw an Architectural Digest or saw on Instagram or Pinterest somewhere, somebody who brought up, oh, look at this lovely southern French white oak. And there's, it might have been southern white oak. It might have you know, been felled from Louisiana or, you know, Arkansas or Alabama or something like that. So it is Southern white oak, but is it any different than white oak felled in Pennsylvania or Massachusetts or New York? No, it's still Quercus alba. It is still white oak. Um, if you want to charge more for it though, you can call it Southern white oak and that's the fun world of marketing. <laughs> Finally, I've got a question here from John on veneer matching. He says, I'm refinishing my dining room table, which was built in the 1950s, where the lacquer is starting to fail. I'm pretty confident the tabletop is mahogany veneer. There are a few places where the veneer edge banding has broken free and the core is visible. I'm seeing online there are like a dozen kinds of mahogany wood. Um, Wood database lists a bunch, but on a veneer, I can't examine the ingrain. So how would you identify these species of a veneer so that I can replace the missing pieces? I have attached a picture for your reference. Um, I looked at the picture and I'm with you, John. It's mahogany-esque. <laughs> um, here's the thing. Veneer, while it is wood, it's kind of not. Um, it's going to behave very differently um, because it is so thin. It's going to absorb finish differently than a solid wood. Um, the glue barrier between the veneer and whatever the substrate is going to absorb finish differently. Um the species itself could be exactly, it could just be generic, genuine mahogany, Sweetina macrophylla. But veneer logs are totally different than lumber logs. They are a much, 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 much higher grade. Um, they're chosen for very specific reasons, for consistency of color, or they're chosen for the figure that's present in it. They're almost indistinguishable from an average mahogany board. So you can't really go to someplace like Wood Database and look at a various types of mahogany and say, oh, Santos mahogany versus African mahogany, you know, versus genuine mahogany, uh, which one is it? Because a veneer sample is going to just look different. The color uh, in an instance of mahogany is probably going to be different than um, a genuine mahogany board because of that veneer log is such a high quality. Moreover, the color with finish on it is going to be totally different than solid wood mahogany with finish on it. So in this instance, it's not actually about matching the species or a backing up and saying it's not really about identifying the species. It's about finding a veneer that looks the same as what you have on your table. If you can 
strip the finish off and get back to the raw veneer without obviously burning through the veneer, I would recommend that because you're going to get a, a more raw wood look, which is what the veneer is going to look like as you're buying it. You know, most veneer houses online, you can actually look at them, um, look at the sheets and see the color, but it's going to be raw wood. There's not going to be finish on it. So if you still have finish on the veneer on your table, it's going to lead you astray a little bit. At the same time, uh, furniture restorers will know that matching veneer can be really, really difficult, especially if the table was built a long, long time ago, that quality of veneer just may not exist anymore. And you have to get creative with the finish itself in order to match the color. And that's where you find all kinds of restoring waxes, but also people who are stripping back to the, to the raw wood and then adding color to the finish itself in order to unify the various species or different cuts of veneer or different vintage of veneer that may be found on the table. So I understand you wanted to know exactly what the species is, but even if you 100% um, identify it as, as genuine mahogany, well then, you know, is it Bolivian genuine mahogany? Is it Guatemalan genuine mahogany? Is it actually Honduran genuine mahogany? Um, is it Southern Brazil? Is it Northern Brazil? <laughs> all of that mahogany is going to be Sweetina macrophylla, but it's all going to look slightly different. Um, so there's a lot of regionality to that, and you're just chasing your tail at that point. Go on the appearance alone, focus on the color, the grain, and getting the right look. And don't worry, it could be dramatically different species. As long as it's going to look right and blend in, you're good to go. So there we go, folks. Kind of a random sampling of questions, but some good questions nonetheless, and a chance to readdress the whole COVID lumber pricing thing. I am going to put a link in the show notes to that Washington Post article. It is worth a read because it definitely puts out some good points, but also paints a light at the end of the tunnel for those of you who are still holding out for lumber prices to uh, stabilize cross your fingers. I think that's happening soon. So thanks for listening, everybody. And again, if you have questions, please send them to lumberupdate at gmail.com or go to lumberupdate.com and fill out the contact form there. I look forward to answering your question. In the meantime, go buy some lumber or take out a loan and go buy some lumber, whatever. Just go buy some lumber.